And a parable is a window to see the kingdom of God, but as one gets closer, the window becomes a mirror to see one's self. That is the definition we've been using uh, because we think the goal of the gospel isn't behavior modification, but soul transformation, uh, where God changes not only our actions, but also our hearts. Parables, then, are a tool by which Jesus challenges and confronts the hearers to reevaluate what faith looks like. So now that we have the, our definition of a parable in mind, uh, I would invite you all to uh, open your Bibles as we read today's text, which is Luke 18, 9 to 14. You can either read with your own Bibles. Uh, we have Bibles in the back if you want one. Or you can read it on the screen behind me. This is Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. Here we go. So, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. All right, so when I was a kid, uh, I, like, I loved to play pretend and like dress up in costumes. I really loved being Spider-Man. That was my favorite. So I loved to play pretend. I would use my imagination to think of all sorts of stories. Um, I would do silly voices and try to make people laugh. A lot of things I still do today. Um, and my parents uh, saw this, saw me do all these things, and thought, hey, you know what this kid needs to do? Drama camp. Uh, so one summer, I did the town's local drama day camp. Uh, and at the end of it, uh, we were going to do like this sarcastic, comedic version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, and I got cast in the role of Prince Charming, uh, <laughs> which I, I did not love. Uh, I was not crazy about that. Uh, but I did my best to like practice and prepare and like, I want to be funny. Um, so on the day of our big performance, the show starts. It's, it finally gets to the moment of my triumphant entrance. And I froze, totally froze. I experienced this terrible stage fright uh, where like, I couldn't move or talk. I was just standing there, and I was like, ah, I actually can't go on stage right now. And as I was standing there, I just kept thinking, like, what if I mess up? What if I look dumb? Uh, what if nobody laughs at my jokes? Or worse yet, what if they laugh at me instead? And the counselor, like these camp counselors, bless their hearts, uh, they tried to get me on stage and they were stalling and they're like, no, they're trying to talk to me like, no, go, go, go. Uh, my parents came back to encourage me, um, but I just wouldn't budge. Eventually, one of the counselors just did my part instead because the show must go on. Um, but I've never forgotten how inadequate I felt that day. And just how uh, I felt this like deep down fear that I just like wasn't good enough, uh, and it paralyzed me. As much as I'd love to say that that was only drama camp, um, I felt that fear throughout my life, uh, and I suspect I'm not the only one. 
uh, many of us are already familiar with the sociologist uh, Brene Brown, who for two decades has studied the causes and functioning of shame, vulnerability, empathy. And from her research, she defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And though it looks different in each case, she says it's an almost universal experience. For a variety of reasons, people develop uh, negative scripts in their head uh, of fear and doubt that just kind of play on loop. Uh, messages we've internalized in the past that now shape how someone views themselves in the present. It's, it's that tape in our head that says, um, like, we're an idiot or a jerk or a loser. Uh, it's a script that says we'll never be good enough to meet other people's expectations, so why even try? The voice that says we're not smart enough, talented enough, or way too messed up to ever truly be loved or accepted. In short, shame tells us that no matter what we do or accomplish, we're not enough. And one way out of the cycle is to distinguish shame uh, from guilt. Unlike shame, guilt doesn't tell us we're a bad person. Uh, guilt tells us when we've done something wrong. It's our conscious correcting us when we don't act according to our values. So to put it simply, shame says, I do bad things, therefore I'm a bad person. And guilt says, I do bad things, but I'm still a good person. Right? Uh, it, um, yeah, in this framework, our sense of self uh, is independent of our actions. So we can mess up and still be a good person. Our mistakes don't define our worth. And in my life, I've really benefited, benefited from learning this. Uh, as a result, uh, I find I'm more uh, emotionally resilient and able to be more vulnerable in my relationships, um, for which I'm really thankful. And yet, as much as I love this framework, I've also found it doesn't always ease my sense of inadequacy. Because there are times uh, when my best actually just isn't enough. And as much as I tell myself I'm a good person, I seem to mess up with far too much regularity to think there's something wrong, uh, not just with my behavior, but with me. At least I've been re wrestling with that recently. Uh, it started last month uh, when I overreacted to some people close to me. Um, I became annoyed and frustrated with them, and instead of talking to them about it, I withdrew and lashed out with short, snippy comments. That was mean. And even though I knew my response was wrong, I didn't change my behavior. And I caused uh, hurt and disappointment because of it. At the same time, I know a lot of people uh, that are going through some hard things right now, uh, people that I really love and care about. Uh, there are illnesses and divorce and breakups and deaths and mental health crises and feelings of isolation, uh, among a whole host of other challenges. As much as I want to help and support these people, my friends and family that I care about, I find I often have no idea what to say or do. In the face of their suffering, I often feel powerless and helpless uh, to do anything about it. And then on top of all this, uh, last month I found out uh, my car uh, was broken beyond repair, uh, which happens all the time. Um, but I've been fortunate enough where I've never had to buy or sell a car before, um, so I had no idea where to start. I just felt kind of, I don't know, felt helpless. 
While I may have been uh, able to manage these situations individually, together they created a potent sense of inadequacy. As I heard that all-familiar voice saying, you're not enough. In looking at the mess around me, uh, it was hard to deny it. After all, I didn't even know how to fix a car. How could I mend a broken relationship or ease someone's suffering? It's one thing to say, I'm good enough. But then what happens when your best doesn't cut it? What happens when the situation is too big and messy? Are you still enough then? What happens when in spite of your best efforts, you continue to fail and disappoint the people you care about? Are you still good? Maybe you've wrestled with these questions as well. I bring all this up because I think uh, this is the question that's the, the backdrop of our parable this morning. Am I really enough? Am I really good enough? As we see in verse 9, to some who are confident, or Jesus, yeah, the setup is, to some who are confident of their own righteousness. In Greek, the word righteousness here carries the connotation of integrity, virtue, and correctness of living. It was used to describe someone who had received acceptance before God. Uh, so being righteous was the goal, uh, the ideal state of being. Uh, so Jesus is telling this parable to people who are convinced that at their core, they're good enough. But then Jesus challenges their assumptions about who is righteous or who is good by pitting two recognizable figures against each other, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were the religious superstars of the day that went above and beyond uh, what the Old Testament law required, uh, and, and they went above and beyond be, to prove their dedication to God. They really, really cared about doing things right. Tax collectors, on the other hand, uh, were nearly universally hated during that time uh, because they had a reputation of exploiting others. They would charge, when they would go about collecting taxes, uh, they would charge way more than what was owed in order to line their own pockets. And because they had the backing of Rome, Rome didn't really care. It was like, hey, as long as we get paid, do whatever you want. So they, yeah, so tax collectors were just known as, were known as extortionists. Moreover, Jewish tax collectors were particularly reviled precisely because they worked for Rome, uh, Israel's oppressor. So our character here uh, would have been considered an extortionist, a traitor, just an all-around bad dude. So this would have been uh, shocking to the original audience that Jesus says, no, the bad guy, he's accepted. He is justified. The tax collector is good enough. This would have been shocking. And, you know, on the surface level, at the, at the mirror, at the window level, this is great news because it reveals that the kingdom of God is for the outsider and the despised. Right? It reveals God's heart for the lost and broken. It shows how God will always accept someone who is able to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is great news. I think one temptation when uh, interpreting this parable uh, would then be to say, okay, so let's just act like the tax collector and not like the Pharisee. Done. 
right? God accepts the tax collector, so let's just do what he does. Uh, Let's confess our sins and humbly ask for mercy, which sounds great, except that also kind of just sounds like more moralism to me, Uh, because then we're we're just kind of updating the list of religious do's and don'ts. Do confess. Do ask for mercy. Don't be judgmental. Don't look down on others. And then that may lead us. Oh, thank you. Does this work? Great. All right. So do confess. Do ask for mercy. Don't look down on others. Don't be judgmental. But then that may just lead us to a different version of the Pharisee's prayer. Right? The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you. I am not a tax collector. But if we were to just try to emulate or just imitate the tax collector, then our prayers may become, God, thank you I'm not a Pharisee, right? Thank you, I confess my sins. I confess my sins, I ask for mercy. Thanks, God, I'm not like that. Same template, different words. So I think trying uh, to imitate or mimic uh, the tax collector will still leave us in this uh, mindset where our actions determine our value. It will leave us thinking that if I do good things, I am a good person, which is really just kind of the flip side of shame, right? It's the same logic, actions determining worth. But if our definition of parable is true, and this story holds a mirror up to ourselves, then what does it say? Well, it says we're sinners. And I don't know about you, but that makes me a little uncomfortable, because it kind of sounds like saying, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying we're bad people. So I think the temptation here would be to interpret this prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner, as an expression of guilt. We might be tempted to say, well, the tax collector is righteous because he knows he does wrong, but since he trusts in God's forgiveness, he's good. He does bad things, but still. He's good, which sounds nice, except it's also not really what the text is saying. Like, the text doesn't back it up, because the word for sinner here uh, is a substantive adjective, meaning this word describes the substance or the essence of the object. So this is so much deeper than guilt. The tax collector is not saying, I do sinful things, but I'm still good. No, the tax collector is saying, I do sinful things because I am sinful. He's saying he is flawed. And it seems like Jesus is saying that being righteous means admitting our nature is full of sin. But then how does that work? Does that mean God will only accept us if we first feel worthless? Will God only see us as good if we believe we're bad? Are we only accepted if we first feel ashamed? I don't think so. Let's go back, uh, Scott, if we can, to Brene Brown's definition of shame. So shame, again, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So I think that perhaps an unspoken assumption in this framework is that flawed things are unworthy of love. So instead of shame being this two-step process, 
I do bad things because I'm a bad person. I actually think shame is more of like a three-step process. I do bad things because I am flawed, and therefore I am unworthy. And in this framework, then, if I'm flawed, then I can't be worthy. And if I'm worthy, then I can't be flawed. Like, flawlessness and worthiness are linked together. But what if that's not true? What if flawed things were worthy? And what if broken things were still loved? Because as I read the Bible, uh, I see God finding worth in a bunch of flawed people. There's Abraham, the habitual liar. His son Isaac, a sloth. His grandson Jacob, a deceiver. The apostle Peter was a hothead. Paul helped to kill people. Thomas doubted. King Solomon was a glutton. The prophet Jonah was prejudiced. Elijah was a quitter. Jeremiah struggled with depression for all of his ministry. Moses was a murderer. The Israelites were stubborn complainers every step of the journey. All of these people, all of these um, individuals that we hold up as heroes in the Bible, all of them were flawed. All of them struggled. And every one of them was deemed worthy of love. Not because of who they were or what they did, but because God said so. God chose to find, or God chose them. God found worth in them. Now, to be clear, I think Brene Brown's definition of shame is 100% correct. Shame is to feel flawed and think we are unworthy. Completely agree. But I think the point of the parable today is to say that we are flawed and we are still worthy. After all, a tax collector's life would have been built and oriented around the sustained and systematic exploitation of other people. Right? That's just not a bad action, but that is a corrupt way of living. He was sinful and he believed God would still accept him. And that's why he's considered righteous, because he could recognize the faults in his person and still trust that God's mercy was deeper still. He was justified because he could say, yes, I am a sinner and I am worthy. But the Pharisee didn't do that, right? In the Pharisee's prayer, uh, he just talked about himself. There's no mention of his faults here. It's just a list of how awesome he is. And I don't think it's coincidence that there's also barely any mention of God in here either. Right? Just a little shout out in the beginning, and then the rest is just all about him. It's like, he's, it's like the Pharisee's prayer shows a heart that's so consumed in trying to prove his acceptance, it doesn't recognize God offering acceptance freely. It's as if in trying to disconnect and distance himself from his faults, Pharisee disconnects and distances himself from God. 
So what if feeling incomplete and insufficient weren't signs that we're unworthy, but a way that God teaches us our true worth? What if feeling inadequate isn't an indictment of shame, but a signal pointing us toward our need for a greater God? What if feeling like we're not enough isn't God condemning us, but the first step in how God exalts us? After all, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the word humble in Greek uh, literally refers to height and suggests making oneself low or close to the ground. Uh, So in a way, humility is learning how to stay grounded, learning how to see ourselves for who we are and who we are not. I think being humble means embracing our limits, embracing that we are created and not the creator. It's knowing that we are from dust, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. Humility is about, uh, I, yeah, I think humility is about celebrating all the beauty and goodness uh, with which God has made us, while also confronting all the ways we distort that goodness. I think humility says, I do bad things, I make mistakes, because I am limited and flawed, but I am always worthy. In this way, I think being humble is really just being human, living into uh, the fullness of our human nature. It's living the way God designed for us. I think humility is just walking the path God intended for us to walk. After all, this is the path Jesus took. As we can read in Philippians 2, even Jesus himself, God in the flesh, humbled himself. Jesus, the perfect human, also walked this path of humility, of knowing who he was and who he was not. And God exalted him for it. So what if being righteous is really just about being fully human? And what if being justified is simply about embracing who God made us to be and all the limitations and worthiness that comes with it? In that case, I think sin and brokenness occur when we go off that path, when we veer from the path, when we take on roles and expectations that God never intended for us, when we seek value and meaning in something other than God. If that's true, then I think feeling inadequate just reveals the areas of life where we have stopped trying to be human and started trying to be something else. Trying to be something we're not. Uh, Feeling inadequate is just when we've stopped trying to follow God on the path of humility and started to mimic God, as if we could ever be like God. But it is only in a life with God, a life spent walking this path of humility, that we can find the love and belonging we so desperately need. One exercise uh, I've recently learned has really helped me um, navigate and kind of recognize when I am on or off this path of humility. Um, It's a simple prayer that comes from a a pastor and an author named Stephen Cuss. 
Um, and it goes something like this. It says, Jesus died, so I don't have to blink anymore. A lot of blinks this service. And in that blank, you put whatever anxiety or pressure makes you feel unworthy. So in my terrible month, uh, when I constantly um, kept bumping up against my failures and limitations, I went to this prayer a lot. Here are some of the things I put in. Jesus died, so I don't have to keep the score or get even anymore. Jesus died, so I don't have to be right all the time. Jesus died, so I don't have to pretend like I'm always fine. Jesus died, so I don't have to have all the answers anymore. Jesus died, so I don't have to solve or fix everything. As if I ever could. So doing this prayer has reminded me of the distinction between God and myself. It has reminded me that God never asked me to be perfect, never asked me to be in control, never asked me to have all the answers. (laughs) God never asked me to save the world. That's his job, not mine. No, my role is to follow, to trust, to listen, to worship, to abide. And I found that by embracing this role more, I have felt a lot freer. Not that things are perfect. And in fact, by doing this prayer, I've learned a lot more of all the ways I keep going off the path in areas where I keep needing to grow. But in the short time of doing this prayer and doing this exercise, I have felt freer. Just freer to admit when I'm struggling, freer to repent and make amends, uh, freer to ask for forgiveness, freer to listen and empathize without having to solve, uh, freer to love unconditionally, because I know that's how God loves me. So as we close today, I would invite you all to consider how you would fill in that blank. Where in your life, do you feel imperfect or insufficient? Where in your life do you feel like you're not enough? Whatever it is, know that you're not alone in those feelings. God is already there. God is before and outside of our limitations. God is in, is already there in our hurt, in our pain, and in our struggles. God is already in the dust and mess of our lives, waiting for us, inviting us to follow him. And as hard or scary as that may be, I think it's only in confronting our feelings of worthlessness that we can truly hear that voice that says we are worthy. In facing the shame, we can hear the voice that says, no, you are loved and you belong. And I think in a world that's often hard and broken and full of despair, that's some really good news.